And I'm AJ McDougall, geared from me about William F. Starr, one of the chaplains at Columbia during the 1968 protests. Today, that story continues. Starr remained at Columbia for decades. He continued to influence student organizing, to support students in his role as a chaplain, and to occupy a singular space in Earl Hall and in the Diocese of New York. What happens at Earl Hall? There isn't that much space at Columbia, but there are a lot of different kinds of spaces. There are spaces for sleeping and spaces for eating. Spaces for socializing and spaces for studying. Spaces for learning and spaces for performing. And each of these spaces has its associated governor. Every classroom has a professor, every dormitory, an RA. Among these, there are spaces that aren't as easily categorized. They exist at the boundaries of what the university should oversee, its students' material needs and education, and what it can't or what it shouldn't. The squat little round buildings that bookend Low Library are two of these spaces, St. Paul's Chapel and Earl Hall. Neither of these buildings is as old as the 1897 McKim, Mead, and White master plan for Columbia's Morningside campus. When it was built in 1897, it lacked spaces designated for spiritual purposes. St. Paul's Chapel was dedicated in 1906. Earl Hall in 1902. Now you can walk into the chapel almost any time during the day. You'll be reminded by a little sign placed by the university's chaplain office that you're standing in sacred space. The chapel responds to a clear need, fills a clear purpose. For church services, you need a church. Earl Hall was built with a much broader mandate. William Dodge, who gifted the Hall to Columbia, had a non-specific vision with a nice 1900s nod to diversity. For the furtherance of the religious interests of the university to be used by the YMCA with some arrangements by which other religious organizations, Jew and Catholic, could perhaps enjoy its hospitality without control. So have you been into El Hall? Yes, I have. This is a conversation with Paul Martin, a current professor in the Barnum Human Rights Department. He knows Earl Hall well, as he should. Martin was director of the Earl Hall Center, the main hub of religious life on campus from 1972 until 1986. So if you walk in the back door, I don't know if you can still walk in, his office was on the right. So it tended to be a very convenient place. Sonia Allen, a graduate of the Columbia College class of 1994, walked into that office in Earl Hall often during her years on campus. Yeah, it's funny, like I used to, ahead of this ritual, we go to meetings there and then um, like I check my email, you know, I don't know, it was like probably like the first year of like email, ancient little computer, they had a little public terminal up there and stuff, so yeah, that, that was the, so I kind of remember like the um, the little ritual of getting up and climbing up the stairs to Earl Hall and then doing that and then going down into the into the basement and I, I, I wish I, well, like I remember that, I feel like I would just be sitting on the floor most of the time at meetings, so, and then, you know, um, um, yeah, I just still had a nice comfortable office and was, you know, had a nice chair, looked comfortable. Christine Philieu, another member of her class. Um, I remember it was down in the basement, I remember it was full of papers and books and had, like, kind of a beat-up couch and armchairs so that we could sit around and have meetings and he'd have, like, you know, J. 
cookies for us on this coffee. It was all very informal. Um, yeah, very just living room like, um, pretty messy, but you know, very homey. The office in question belonged to the Reverend William Starr. You met him with AJ. Everyone called him Bill. Like Sonia, Christine spent a lot of time in Bill's office. But neither of them was especially religious. They knew Bill through their involvement in the student activist groups that met in Earl Hall. The building provided a space for groups that couldn't meet elsewhere. And when I say space, I don't just mean it physically. College can be isolating. Beyond its physical lack of square footage, Columbia lacks spaces that foster connection and comfort. For undergraduates living on their own for the first time, that's a big deal. Students and faculty alike were struck by the singularity of Bill's space. I spoke with Sister Leslie, a member of the Community of the Holy Spirit, which is a community of Episcopal women religious who used to live on 113th, right by campus, and now have a convent up in Hamilton Heights. Sister Leslie was a chaplain at Columbia who worked alongside Bill during his last few years on campus. I mean, this office, I have never worked in a place like this before. What a place. It was me had a falling down couch. You know, there was usually a bicycle in it. Books all over the place. I love books. It didn't matter. You could barely see the top of this desk. And it was just a jumble of, you know, stuff. But it was lived in. The most important feature of the office was the man himself. Oh, having a place in Earl Hall, I think, was crucial. Is crucial. Um, having a place where you can go and know someone will be there. Mm -hmm. Office hours were posted and Bill was there a great deal of time. He really was. The books, the bicycle, the activists. William Dodge probably wasn't envisioning those in the nice little religious space he gave to Columbia. Dodge was a Protestant. The president of Columbia at the time was a Protestant. There's a section on the Wikipedia page on wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, dedicated to the Ivy League and Seven Sisters. Here is the Reverend Michael Corrigan, a Columbia graduate, class of 1970. We're talking, all these are Episcopalians. They're all Episcopalians. And, and he, which is interesting because, of course, Columbia was originally King's College, and even though it was non-denominational, non the chapel there was every bit set up as an as a Episcopal chapel, and there always were Episcopal services there. Dr. Samuel Johnson, the first president of King's College, was a seminary-educated Anglican. He hoped to found a college in the city of New York with a royal charter and an institutional affiliation with the Church of England. As an important aside, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, and the Episcopal Church are all really the same thing. Anyway, the stakes of religious life at Columbia are physically tied to the perennial issue of space at the university. The original land for the college was granted by New York's Trinity Church, on the condition that the president always be an Anglican, although students from other denominations would be permitted to study at the school. There is no intention to impose upon the scholars the peculiar tenets of any particular sect of Christians, but to inculcate upon their tender minds the great principles of Christianity and morality in which true Christians of each denomination are generally agreed. And as to any peculiar tenets, each one is left to judge freely for himself. An advertisement for King's College run in a 1754 New York City paper declared, The chief thing that is aimed at at this college is to teach and engage the children to know God in Jesus Christ and to love and serve him in all sobriety, godliness, and righteousness of life with a perfect heart and a willing mind. The first university chaplain, the Reverend Cornelius R. Duffy, which is, let's admit it, a fantastic name, 
was hired in 1857. St. Paul's Chapel and then Earl Hall sprang up. From Duffy onward, there was an essentially steady line of Episcopal University chaplains. That line ended abruptly, in the middle of the 20th century. The Reverend John D. Cannon was the last of them. From 1969 until 1996, there was no university chaplain. An investigation led by the ad hoc group the President's Committee on Religious Life led to the creation of a Center for Religion and Life instead. The committee was headed by Cannon. It included, among its diverse members, anthropologist Margaret Mead and biomedical engineering professor Edward Leonard, who's still on campus. The intention of the change was to give students more control over religious life. In the words of the committee, Religious life on campus must be responsive both to the changing needs of students and other members of the university community, and to the changing climate of religious life in society at large. The Catholic chaplain at the time, Monsignor Ray, was appointed interim director after Cannon left Columbia. Ray said that his goal for the center was to provide the student body at Columbia with a place for open forum and easy atmosphere for discussion and dialogue, unstructured opportunities for the development of workshops, seminars, and ad hoc committees, religious services, counseling services, and an open invitation for experiments in the development of spiritual, philanthropic, and religious life. Ray's statement demonstrates an awareness of what I'm thinking of as space. His place, his atmosphere, his forum. It's a recognition that the physicality, the where, of how we engage each other is important. The Earl Hall Center is named after the building. The building is a starting point for administrative changes. Earl Hall would be headed by a secular director instead of an Episcopal priest, and decisions about the appointment of religious advisors would be carried out by a student governing board. The creation of the center ended two centuries of Columbia's official, although effectually limited, affiliation with the Episcopal Church. And in the late 1960s, Earl Hall spun into an identity crisis at the same time that different chaplains at campuses across the nation were redefining ministry. I became, I was, I was head, I was the president of a group called the Anglican Fellowship. And basically we were Episcopal students at, at Columbia. But, you know, it wasn't exclusive to Episcopalians, but we, we ran different things. Corrigan went from being involved in campus ministry as an undergraduate to divinity school at Harvard. I spoke with him partially because he had insight into campus ministry generally and knew Earl Hall well. But there was something else at the crux of my interest in Corrigan's story. Bill was certainly a friend and a mentor. Star thrived in the years that Corrigan was on campus. In the 60s and early 70s, Star's ministry hummed with activity and activism and meaningful work. That he never was happier than the 1960s. I think that's when he was happiest. I think that's when he felt like he was accomplishing the most. Those years shaped his career. But I don't think he ever stopped. I don't think he ever stopped. He, he, never, he never stopped being involved in, in causes that, that he thought were important, and he never stopped challenging students to, you know, to think about larger issues than simply getting ahead and making a career, and, you know, which he didn't put down, but he thought that people should have you know, higher motives and higher goals and ideals than just you know, being successful. Starr's attitude reflected the ideas expressed by the committee. He wanted an encompassing view of student spiritual life that appealed to non-religious students and that provided explicit space for activism and political action. But very rarely do bureaucracies successfully maintain spiritual ideals. I mean, I must admit, I did expect much more energy in Earl Hall. Martin's directorship was followed by that of Rabbi Michael Paley, who was followed by Julian L. Davis. And with the arrival of Davis came the end of the Earl Hall Center. 
In a Spectator article about her hiring in 1996, Davis was quoted as saying, I asked for the position of university chaplain. A university chaplain is able to deal with university-wide issues with the qualities of religious and spiritual thinking and community service that most other offices on campus don't have. Davis was the first non-Episcopalian to hold the position of university chaplain at Columbia, and she was the first African-American woman to be a university chaplain at an Ivy League school. These are important and meaningful firsts to recognize. But her choice of title also served to mark the failure of the wide-ranging and innovative experiment outlined in 1969 by the Committee on Religion and Life. The relationship between the ever-changing bureaucracy and Starr's position was unclear anyway. Starr was a representative of the university in that he provided a service for Columbia students, but... He wasn't appointed by Columbia. He was appointed by the Bishop of New York, the Episcopal Bishop of New York, and he was paid, such as it was... And I don't think he got his entire salary from it, but he, he was paid by the diocese, the Episcopal Diocese of New York. And they weren't salaried by the university, okay. right? Okay. Never salaried, so. This is a story told around Bill Starr. But it's not a profile, not a story about his life, not about his theological beliefs or his political goals. Yes, it includes all of those things. But this story is about space. How spaces are created who they are created for, who gets to inhabit them, and how they use them, and how we justify the way we use space, this space, an elite university in West Harlem. It's about how Starr transformed the spaces he inhabited, singularly. It's about the spaces that we lost when we lost Bill Starr. Act Two, Episcopalian. Bill was a John the Baptist. This is Ben Jealous. He graduated from Columbia College in 1994 and has since gone on to do some mildly interesting things. Ben Jealous, who you should also talk, I don't know, have you talked to him? He's like now former head of the NAACP. He had come to Columbia's campus in A few years ago, Jealous gave an interview to the Explorations in Black Leadership Oral History Project at the University of Virginia. Sort of spiritual leaders of kind of anti-war protests, and, you know, like the uh, Barian brothers and so forth. But he had been on campus and he nurtured a group of students who spiritually were very committed to the new commandment, whether they were Christians or not, for most of them were, were Reformed Jews, but whether they are Christians or not, the notion that, that really the, the commandment above all else is to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and whose politics very much flowed from a judgment based on, are we being treated with dignity? Are they being treated with dignity? The moral questions that Bill posed engaged students who didn't typically identify as religious. But no one noted an emphasis on Bill's part to engage students who already identified as Protestants. Sometimes he would shy away from explicitly religious vocabularies. Cyrus Vassier went to Columbia College, but didn't meet Bill until he was working towards his doctorate in history and began to get involved with activist groups, like the Columbia Students in Solidarity with Nicaragua. I remember, I remember him making, and I think he was saying it in jest, but um, what he said was, we were at some meeting for something, and I don't remember the details, and there were other other students were talking, graduate students, and and someone mentioned something spiritual, and Bill sort of quietly said to me, well, that sounds like God talked to me because it really doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Bill wasn't interested in creating the structure for a self-sustaining Episcopal community on campus. He didn't care about why people were coming to Earl Hall or where they were coming from. 
he had no interest in getting you to church on Sunday or Wednesday nights when services at St. Paul's were often held. He didn't particularly care that those were the kind of things that the foundations that paid his salary wanted him to do. You know, he was very, he was very much his own thing, and he didn't, he definitely didn't want to, he wanted to bring people in, and I think the, the, the narrow denominationalism is something that he probably thought would just push people away, you know, if it's, if you have to be an Episcopal to participate in this activity, then how many how many students would really be there for that? So he tried to be more encompassing. There's a book that came out in 1967 with essays on campus ministry by the contemporary Columbia chaplains. Cannon contributes a piece, as does Bill. His essay, The Changing Campus Scene, From Church to Coffee House, is a veritable encyclopedia of 20th century theologians. He name drops, among others, Reinald Niebuhr, Paul Tillich, Daniel Berrigan, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth. It would take half the volumes in Union's Burke Library to catch every illusion made in those 40 pages. I was expecting Bill's former students to relate to the torrent of technical theology that I had slogged through in an effort to understand Bill's political ideology. But what I found was different. He, he wasn't somebody who kind of like exuded like, you know, um, doctrine or something like that at all. <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess I feel like, um, it, but it's not to say that he wasn't like a, a spiritual person. It's like just a really warm, um, compassionate, um, caring human being. And that that's the way that he was spiritual for, for me anyway, you know. But he didn't have like a theological viewpoint that you felt he expressed not like i mean not in terms of again like anything dogmatic at all like he would never be like oh you know this is irrelevant to some scriptural tidbit or something like zero times you know um yeah never but but again you know in terms of just being a, a really compassionate person um like he exercised he showed that he demonstrated that you know i asked this question of almost everyone i spoke to I was not, you know, I was not Episcopalian. I wasn't, wasn't then, and am not now religious at, at all. But it did seem that he kind of expressed his ministry through these worldly activities. Um, I mean, he did, you know. I know that he would go off and conduct services, and he. There, there was, you know, there was a spiritual side to what he was doing, of course, as Episcopal campus minister. Did he ever articulate, like, a theological basis for his activism, or did you feel that it was more implicit in what he did? He never really articulated it with me, but that could could be me more than him. I never really kind of took that issue up with him. Bill had the personal integrity that comes from uniting one's work and principles, even when that union is subtle. But he could also blend in in different spaces, spaces that were both obviously religious and supposedly secular. He picked up prayer books and protest signs in turn. He, I would say that Bill kind of lived his faith, but he didn't, you know, it wasn't that he wouldn't do a service or that he, you know, wouldn't preach or wouldn't do this kind of thing, but you know, you sort of had to seek him out to do all that. It wasn't that, that he was making a, a giant, I mean, he didn't see his job as, as you know, sort of uh, promoting religious services particularly. For some, the lack of explicit creed made Starr an accessible figure, but the ecumenical, wide-ranging strategy sometimes came at the cost of a solid foundational base. 
Nanda Gerber, Columbia College class of 1992, knew Bill through CSSN. What she perceived of Bill's status among other religious figures demonstrated his singularity as a representative of the church. It was more my understanding, like in general, in the Episcopalian church, like he was kind of more of a, just kind of an outlier. Like, oh, right, that kind of wacky guy. You know what I mean? How do you conceive the role of a religious counselor, advisor of your denomination at Columbia? Two ways. An explicit function which involves activities and associations which have a Christian identification, e.g. liturgy, small group activities. An implicit function which involves me in the issues and concerns of individuals and groups within the university community, e.g. social action, Socratic function, etc. When the Committee on Religion and Life was undertaking its investigation, it sent Columbia's clergy a standard questionnaire. The questions were straightforward. Starr's answers ranged from profound to irreverent. In your work at the university, can religious needs and interests be separated or isolated from other needs and interests? This depends on how you define the word religious. I tend to think of religious needs and interests as synonymous with human needs and interests. That is, I'm not willing to make a sharp distinction between the religious and the non-religious, between the sacred and the secular, between the holy and the common, between the human and the religious. Such distinctions, I think, are demonic and self-deluding. What changes do you anticipate in your present approach to the ministry to higher education, policy, and program? More of the same, less focus on religion in the narrow sense, more concern with and more effort to enable those who are concerned about and alive to issues to exchange ideas and mobilize for action. What sections of the student body are less responsive to your work? Hard to say. Since there's little emphasis on in loco parentis religionis in my work, I would say that those who look to me to reinforce moralistic Sunday school religion are often unresponsive. Some of them move in other directions. It is difficult to think of the university as blocks or lumps of people. Do you discern a decline in the interest of students in religious life? No, not if religious life involves exploration of issues, prophecy, and social criticism, a quest for values and identity. You can hear it in how Bill plays with the responses. His vision for religious life was sometimes directly at odds with that of Columbia as an institution. Earl Hall administrators wanted clarity and boundaries, but Bill tended toward the unexplored and undefined. He insisted on broadening the terms he was given, religious life, prophecy, values, beyond generally accepted usage. Bill's lack of specificity in defining religion clashed with Director Martin's. Religious life, I see religious life as not an abstract thing, it's concrete, Catholics, Protestants, right. things like that to me. And that was sort of, I saw that as their job. The same characteristics that made his work compelling for secular or leftist students could frustrate, alienate, or downright irritate administrators, and Bill would respond in kind. Corrigan recalls, I learned from Bill to have a, a healthy, a healthy, I won't say disrespect, but a healthy desire to not be, not to be completely sucked in by institutions, that to be completely in the thrall of an institution, whether it be the university or whether it be the Episcopal Church or any sending body, is to perhaps lose the power of the, the prophetic voice or the, the, the power of the, the deeper, deeper ethos of what, a, of what a place should be about. Sister Leslie, another chaplain in Earl Hall, observed the relations between Bill and Columbia. Chaplain Davis, I know she's done a tremendous 
great deal of work, good work there, ministry. Mm-hmm. But he and Chaplain Davis rubbed each other the wrong way. Yeah. You know, they were at each other's throats. And that, detra- that I'm not coming, I don't, that's, that was their issue. But it distracts from the ministry. Starr's devotion to students kept him in the job despite his antagonism toward Columbia as a whole. He couldn't let go. So he continued on and paid for a lot of it out of his own pocket money because he was not getting paid. Bill wasn't getting paid in the end. In 1994, he lost the financial support of the Episcopal Diocese. In a Spectator article on the diocesan decision, Christine, then a student, said, I think the things that Bill Starr does, in his mind and a lot of people's minds, are related to spiritual and Christian values. But in the eyes of the church, as a business and a funding organization, maybe they don't see it as being so valuable. But I don't think they really understand his purpose. He remembers 1968. He remembers the divestment protest. He remembers all of it. And if he wasn't there, the Columbia left wing would just be a floating group of people that wants to do something but doesn't understand the kind of resistance that is possible from the administration. He's the one who will go out on a limb to help students. The rift between Bill's position at Columbia and the formal structures of the Episcopal Church had been a long time coming. Quotes that Bill gave to a Spectator reporter in 1967 demonstrated the distinctively Bill-like language that he would use to articulate his sacramentology and ecclesiology. Of course, I don't believe that I've really transformed the bread and wine. I find that a positively frightening concept. It is, however, to me, a satisfying, significant symbolic ritual. People should only come if it really means something to them. The basic format is Episcopalian. But, as AJ mentioned, I really don't accept the institutional goals of the Church. There is nothing unorthodox in an Episcopalian calling the Eucharist a symbolic ritual. Bill's not Flannery O'Connor. The Catholic writer famously said of the Eucharist, well, if it's a symbol, to hell with it. But most Protestant priests still probably wouldn't refer to any aspect of the central ritual of Christian practice as positively frightening. And the same article describes Bill going further still, including in his liturgy improvised speeches and recited poems, like The Dead of Europe by Robert Lowell. He was just open to, that's why I think the limitless tolerance for eccentricity, he was just like open open to conversations, right? And just like appreciated kind of respect, mutual respect, freedom of expression, kind of egalitarianism and just helping people. So it really is kind of the best dimension of Christianity and Protestantism, in my view. Um, So I never felt like he was cagey necessarily. He didn't like go around trying to dictate to people specific things. When Starr wrote and sent out his own questionnaire in the late 80s, he asked students interested in joining the Episcopal Church on campus to rank their interest in various areas, including the Bible, church history, theological issues, but also black issues, draft counseling, gay rights, urban issues, Central America, liberation theology, sexuality, women's issues, and AIDS, among others. The same questionnaire asked students about their willingness to participate in non-sexist liturgies. Bill's ecclesiology, his view of the purpose of the church as a community, was rooted in a specific social context. It was aware of developing social problems and possibilities. It sought to respond to the same. But part of religious tradition is the tradition. Prayer books and liturgies exist to connect the worshiper with the arc of history. Some Christians engage in feminist theology as spiritual practice. Probably more think that doing religion is saying the Nicene Creed or going to confession. Both are totally valid frameworks. I'm being reductive right now because it's impossible not to be when talking about the scope of religious behavior. The point is, a lot of respondents weren't thrilled that their new priest seemed to put sociology before the sacraments. 
Responses to the questions ranged from enthusiastic to confused to borderline hostile. About the non-sexist liturgies, one female GS student wrote, What is wrong with Jesus Christ being a man? Try the Unitarian Church. And another added a note to the bottom. From the questionnaire, it seems that you are more interested in controversial issues than in liturgy. The second student didn't understand the phrase gay rights. A third offered, This list seems to be one of fairly liberal concerns. Presumably, there are conservative ones as well. I believe I might find them interesting if I heard about them. Act three, among the students. We took over. We, we basically um, <laughs> we locked the faculty in low library when they were there for a faculty meeting. Mm-hmm. And we, <laughs> we blocked off all the entrances. It's a Columbia rite of passage, the first time you hold the dean hostage. And this protest action, which Christine recalls as part of a successful student campaign to preserve the university's need-blind admissions policy, seems a far cry from reading poetry in post-crypt. But the remarkable thing about Starr, the part of his story that stuck with me the most, is the breadth of what he would do for students. I can't think of an analogous figure on campus now. Was I sort of mulling over in my mind what it was that I appreciated so much about Bill? Um, other than just being a kind of father figure in a time when it was really quite overwhelming to be an undergrad at Columbia, there was really no support system in place for advising, and you were kind of just dumped in the city as an 18-year-old. <laughs> it, was, it was quite an experience, quite um, alienating. So Bill was kind of one of those warm adult figures that was there to help and was just just very encouraging and supportive in, in every, you know, and I feel like I probably could have come to him with any kind of problem, and he would have helped. Starr wrote letters of recommendation to draft boards, supporting the claims of conscientious objectors to the Vietnam War. He related to both students and colleagues as a person and as a political actor. He made unexpected connections within the university community. With an archival find that felt like a punch to the gut, I unearthed a memo that Starr had helped circulate. It was recruiting faculty members to sign on to the Black Women in Support of Ourselves advertisement that ran in the New York Times during the Anita Hill hearing. He used the Earl Hall platform to invite students to panels about sexual assault, about community issues, about international events. Starr hosted professors at his home, and students often stopped by too. The chaplain's records contained notes from old students, baby announcements, and a Christmas card from Daniel Berrigan. Starr performed services that would usually be expected of therapists or academic advisors. And again, at that time, there really weren't very many interdisciplinary majors. I think there was women's studies. Geography had just been eliminated. So it was sort of like, well, you could do history, you could do poli-sci, you know, like you're doing, you could do religion, but you had to pick one. And I didn't feel I could. So I found out there was this small clause in the Columbia College handbook that said you could design your own major. And again, I don't know how it is now. At that time, nobody did this. Most people didn't even know you could do it. It was kind of like, well, if you wanted to do that, you would have gone to Brown. And I had to have three faculty sponsors. And so Bill, I I mean, I had very little to choose from in terms of who it would be because there just weren't that many people I could think of that would have thought that was a good idea. So, of course, Bill was one of them. And so he really helped me figure out some of the courses that would make sense to take. The students I spoke to who knew Bill were involved in a variety of issues over the period between 1970 and 2000. They championed free speech on campus. They rallied against the first Gulf War. 
They staged a die-in on the steps at the Metropolitan Museum to raise awareness about violence in Latin America. They camped out on those steps in support of new blind admissions. They were members of the Attica Brigade, members of CSSN, publishers of alternative leftist newspapers, and they all found a space in Earl Hall. I think it was a broader group than the students who would just be in CSSN and stuff, because there were kind of overlapping, you know, there were, I think that it was like Barnard Columbia Students for Choice, there were, there were kind of overlapping organizations for a whole range of issues, right, and activist causes. It was Bill's presence that transformed Earl Hall from a building designed, effectively, to be an annex of the YMCA into a comfortable radical space for students, into a space with seats on the floor and conversational equality between undergraduates, older students, and ordained priests. It was Bill's presence that created a space that was fundamentally opposed to the workings of the elite, exclusive, competitive, avaricious, hierarchical university operating outside of Starr's basement office. Like Bill himself, the office was. Definitely idiosyncratic, funny, did not at all fit into the mold of the Columbia establishment. And this alternative personality, these alternative spaces, were meaningful to a lot of people. Nanda remembers a cross-section of campus who would come, grad students, people from different disciplines and departments, members of the university who would never otherwise have met. They converged, and they connected through action. It was both like getting involved in protests, doing some stuff of our own, some on campus. So there were um, labor unions of service workers on campus who were, you know, trying to get a better contract and they'd be, you know, like marching in the main part of campus and we would join and support them. And then there's, I don't know, there was like a campaign to try to get people to boycott like Folgers coffee because it was from El Salvador and you know that would be going on on Broadway outside of a grocery store we'd join that and then also like having speakers come uh different speakers who could talk on you know a lot of international topics international political topics their spaces became labs and classrooms for activism and engagement. Starr's example, his willingness to talk to students and to engage with them as humans, was remarkable. What Bill was doing, he was cultivating human relationships, he was cultivating connections with people, and really listening to people and caring about what they thought, and trying to, you know, kind of build the connections that are really the fabric of, like, good decision-making and, you know, ethics and all, all sorts of good stuff. It's a Bill was singular. You know, Columbia is a very competitive place. Everybody's trying to get ahead. Um, the old 60s uh, slogan against that was work, work, study, get ahead, kill. And, and Bill was kind of an antidote to all of that. You know, his you go into his office and had these, like, ancient sofas, you know, that you could sink into, and he would take time to talk to you at, at any time of day or whenever you happened to show up there. Uh, so he was very, there was just a sense of uh, kind of being supportive to people who were trying to do good things. Um, and I think that had an impact on undergraduate students, probably more than graduate students, in terms of kind of valuing the non-competitive, you know, non-resume building aspects of, of undergraduate life. I don't know where to go on campus to find an open door with a seat to sink into. I don't know which faculty member I would ask to help me design a major or to sponsor an alternative publication. There were legitimate critiques of Bill's style. He wasn't that focused on the Christian tradition, which, arguably, a Christian minister should be. Maybe something does get lost when a spiritual guide lacks clear religious beliefs. 
Maybe peace with institutions is a worthwhile goal. Columbia University and the Episcopal Diocese of New York aren't going anywhere anytime soon. What are the limits and responsibilities of a campus minister compared to other clergy? I ask Sister Leslie and she laughs. What does it mean to be a priest? You know, and mm-hmm. What would it mean then to be a priest in those things? Did you think that question of yourself? <laughs> Good. Yeah, thank you. That is, no, seriously, that is a really, that's a very profound question. And I think a lot of the campus ministers probably should be asked that question. Starr's answer to the question is far from the only one, but his ministry was meaningful to a lot of people. He lasted at Columbia a long time, and with his books, his bicycles, his fallen in couches, he transformed a piece of space here and made something new. I'm Amy Rupert, executive producer for The Ear, filling in for Grace and AJ this week. I would like to thank the voice actors in this episode, Eliza Jeepnugan, Sarah Bell, and Luke Cregan, as well as the Explorations in Black Leadership Project at University of Virginia. Music used in the episode was created by Candle Gravity and Poddington Bear, provided via freemusicarchive.org. Sound effects were provided via freesound.org. And thank you for listening to this episode. I'll talk to you soon.